Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show. I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Today on the show, we are going to get right back into reading Parting the Waters, um, America in the King Years, 1954 to 1963 by Taylor Branch. And this is going to be episode 0002. I'm leaving us some space because this is a big book. It's over 900 pages, and we may do some more of the books. So who knows how many episodes we're going to have. Um, today, we're jumping right into Chapter 3, Nibor and the Pool Tables. And I have my friend Gabe here. And Gabe, um, what's your initial thoughts just on Chapter 3? I found this focus on Dr. King doing his master's degree as uh, surprisingly exciting to me. It's his intellectual and professional formation, but it's also a crisis for him. Uh, and ends up, I think, setting up the tension between Dr. King's worldview and broad progressive liberalism. This may be our most uh, theoretical episode and less story-driven or, you know, moving things along because there's a lot of discussion that he writes about uh, liberal Christian theory. And he starts, he's at Crozier Theological School in Eastern Pennsylvania. And he gets into the social gospel, which is something that is pushed, I guess, or kind of created by Walter Rushenbosch, Rushenbush, a German Lutheran turned Baptist who wrote a book titled Christianity and the Social Crisis. And the social gospel is concerned with issues of social justice, economic inequality, poverty, crime, racial tensions, environmental issues, child labor, you know, pro-union, you know, schools, you know, uh, pacifism. And it really becomes prominent in the early 20th century in the U.S. and Canada. And theologically, social gospelers sought to put into practice the Lord's Prayer. As we all know, Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I used to say that all the time uh, when I was younger. Did you say prayers when you were? No, you didn't because you were okay. Um, they typically were post-millennialists. I'm not sure what that means. But they believed the second coming could not happen until humankind rid itself of social evils by human effort. Let me, let me just jump in because I, I think that this is, again, one of those points that for those of us who are coming from a secular point of view or social democratic or Marxist point of view or for those of us who are Jews, like it's easy to forget how important Christianity and, and, and in this case Protestant Christianity is as a lens from which to look at injustice and social reality in the U.S. for so many people. Mm -hmm. that there's Rauschenbusch, then we'll see Davis, who's his professor, and, and Niebuhr, all of these people have these experiences as pastors, as community activists in industrial towns, places like Pittsburgh, places like Detroit, where race and class are playing out intensely. There is injustice, there is social struggle, and the tools that they have to understand and explain this and to think it through and imagine things being better is Protestant Christianity, mm -hmm. right? The, these are uh, immigrant German... Yeah, you have, uh, or, or you have Schweitzer. Wh white, white theologians, mm -hmm. but they're speaking to, to King because King also has 
been born into a world of inequality and injustice, of course, uh, as a, a black man in the South, right? We talked about him growing up and seeing the bread lines and intensely being aware of racial injustice, but they have Christianity as a tool to understand the world around them. And I, I find that empathy, I have empathy for that. Sure. I have sympathy with that, yeah, even you, though it's not my world. Right. You have uh, Rauschenbusch and Schweitzer, I think more social gospel style, and even Niebuhr, which we're going to get into in a little bit, that are kind of pushing a uh, intellectual prism that's a little different than the standard religious theology that I'm familiar with of Jesus Christ being our Savior and let's just pray to him and all that, which is, I think... <laughs> you know, Billy Graham, uh, Norman Vincent Peale are kind of on the opposite side of that. Vincent Peale is the guy that wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. These preachers have come to national prom prominence. I think they're more focused on an individual's connection with Christ, where these guys, not so much Niebuhr, we'll get into that in a second, they are saying, we got to eliminate these ills now, these societal ills now. We need to focus on building a better society now, not just because it's the right thing to do, but if we want to get Jesus to come down here, we got to show him, hey, we're following you know, what he preached. And King gets introduced to this by, as Gabe mentioned, his professor at Crozier, George Davis, who's the son of a union activist in Pittsburgh, Steel Mills, shout out to Pittsburgh, um, and Professor uh, Davis is big on Gandhi. He lends uh, King a book about Gandhi or one of Gandhi's books. Um, he also starts getting interested in Albert Schweitzer, who pushes the Sermon on the Mount teachings, which are like kind of ethical ways for people to live their life. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know much about that. Um, but let's add another element to this, yeah. which is that it's a combination of this uh, reaction to social injustice with a liberal uh, philosophical uh, Christianity discourse with Christianity and specifically and I, I, Christian. I think it's, it's I think it's important, and we'll, because when we talk about Niebuhr in a second, this is going to be important because they're they're thinking about humanity and individual humans as sort of perfectible through education. But they're not talking about John Stuart Mill and John Locke and Rousseau. They're doing it through the Christian, you know. Yeah, I think that I th I think that's right, but they're also um and 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 this is this is where the tension with people like Billy Graham is is important. They are as as Branch would say, I think that they're beginning to sort of abstract Christianity away from discussing salvation and sin towards the the social ideas of say the sermon on the mount and trying to make this uh as intellectually respectable uh, in an academic sense mm -hmm. as possible of course they're moving further and further away from unacademically trained actually existing christians uh which creates a long-term problem for liberal uh Protestant. Yes. And, and Rauschenbusch, you know, he, Branch writes, he, wrecks, he rejects the usual religious emphasis on matters of piety mm. and, you know, focused on the spirit of brotherhood and social ethics, which I think is kind of cool. Um, he denounces pride, selfishness, oppression as transgressions against the divine historic plan. So to be, you know, racist or anti-union was a transgression against God because God wants us to have a better society so we can come back down. And so um, this is all about culminating in the Christian idea of love perfection among people. I love you, Gabe. Love you, Paul. 
of course, this gets denounced as communist, um, and people see this as trying to blend, you know, Marxism and a classist society or stateless society with these, you know, heretical views, I guess. But uh, it, it's, it gets popular. I mean, there's huge books that or landmark books that come out talking about um, social gospel stuff. And at the same time, when this branch is writing about this, King is taking a ton of classes at Crozier about oratory. And everybody just, we all kind of know what a great speaker Martin Luther King was. And he just, he didn't get good at that overnight. Branch says that he took fewer than nine courses on it. He practiced it a ton. And there were different types of sermons that he would, he would go through. There was whole classes, like you would do the ladder sermon, you know, kind of rising up, the skyrocket sermon, the twin sermon, the surprise package sermon, and the jewel sermon, and that you had to do the three Ps, proving, painting, and persuasion. So he's learning how to give a speech, how to talk, uh, how to convince people of a certain point, you know, kind of go round and round about a certain point from different angles every time, making an argument. Um, and at the same time, he's reading Marx. He says, hey, uh, Marx is okay, but... Let's, let's just say something about sure. this, this, this preaching. That it, In our uh, first episode, I talked about being a little kid and listening to Martin Luther King on a TV, mm-hmm. uh, giving a speech and, and marveling at that. But it is a craft that you can learn. Yes. Uh, and obviously... Uh, Speaking, public speaking is something which goes back to the ancient Greeks. As someone who has learned how to talk a certain way right, right. as a union organizer, yeah. you, we, we, we would spend so much time breaking down how to make an argument, how to have a conversation with someone one-on-one or with a group. And it's it's fascinating to see how people who go through this particular kind of training as uh, Protestant ministers are getting this really intensive focus, mm-hmm. and they take it seriously because they break they, it down to a science. Th- this is how they're going to take their academic theology and popularize it. They mm-hmm. want to make it accessible to hundreds and then thousands of people. And King is extraordinarily gifted at this, even as a student. It seems like he probably had a knack for it to begin with, and was going to be good at it. And then he takes all this training and then he just becomes exceptional at it. And I don't know if I mentioned this before on a previous episode or one that we deleted. (laughs) We had some technical difficulties earlier, but he goes down and uh, does a lecture or does a sermon at his dad's church. And when he's like 19 years old, I think uh, Branch says he kind of copies it from another already given sermon, but nonetheless, he kind of knocks it out of the park and I think are... I think that's very common actually. Yeah. I, I think even today many pastors will share or publicize their sermons and others will in whole or in part sort of take take them on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he goes down there he, he like knocks it out of the park and his dad's I mean his dad really wants him to be yeah, the sermon actually was called Life is what you make it and it was borrowed from uh, the Riverside Church sermon. Um from Fosdick. From Fosdick, yeah. So Okay, so let's get into Niebuhr. So King is really kind of enamored with the social gospel. He's reading a lot about it, and he feels like kind of this is his thing. Like, I like this. Um, you know, he's he has studied Marx. He likes him a little bit, but says, you know, these are you know two cold scientific doctrines really didn't leave any room for moral forces to act in history. Um, you know, moral, ethical, uh, had to be a component, not just 
economic determinism, which I think is a fair cr- criticism, honestly. It's it's interesting to see how sort of King takes this on and 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 Branch sort of says this is the his objection to communism or to Marxism, which he'll retain for the rest of his life. But, but it's also interesting how though different uh, liberal theologians, including uh, black intellectuals in the church, um, Branch points out, are also collecting works of Marxism and studying and reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, communist journals and, and documents that there, that there's an interest in the attention that for example communists play to issues of race and racism which is uh significantly unique in american politics at this time i think yeah and and king i think is opposed to sort of this branch rights like economic determinism and just the cold science of like marx's teaching but he does seem to like, I guess, the critique of capitalism. Uh, he acknowledges that at one point. Uh, and I think he likes the the, the kind of prism or game of how Marx and Hegel view the world and how ideas come into existence. This, like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, theory, anti-theory? Thesis and antithesis. Yeah, thesis and antithesis and synthesis. Um, Marx was in a group in college, I think it was at Crozier, maybe it was at Morehouse or maybe even Boston, called the Dialectical Society. And Marx's whole thing is dialectics of like, you know, the interchangeable ideas and how they bounce off each other and affect each other and all that stuff. Um, so he's he's reading a ton. Branch talks about like he's just staying in his room, has tons of books just stacked up on, on you know, in each other. And then... He's really into the social gospel, and then Reinhold Niebuhr comes out with this book, Moral Man and an Immoral Society, and King reads it in 1950, and it, like, crushes him almost. It really is taking a big dump on the social gospel. (laughs) I mean, not necessarily, but kind of. So he's making fun of the social gospel people. He's saying, you guys are naive. It's, It's silly to think that, you know, social gospel folks are sort of promoting this idea that just the steady advance of reason and goodwill in the modern age will be capable of eradicating social evils. All this is a kind of a liberal idea, you know. I, I think a lot of Marxists actually would be almost Nieberites in a way because it's not just going to be reason and progress and education that's going to fix these problems. Um, now Niebuhr's thing is there is evil, there is sin. You have to acknowledge that or you're not going to get anywhere. And that it's it's just preposterous to think you can just educate people their way out of this. I, I like this part of the book. And this is the part that really surprised me by how sort of thrilled I was to, to read this and to sort of picture the young king struggling with this. Uh, and I, I like the the snapshot or the, uh, the, the miniature portrait of Niebuhr as... Uh, irritating Marxists and irritating liberals and irritating conservatives. Yeah. And you can see how this would uh, sort of tilt King's thinking on his axis because King then applies this to, in particular, the role of the the black minister who has taken on board liberal theology that to simply continue to uphold morality, to try to educate people to sort of reproduce the institution of the black church is 
in in this view, totally inadequate to mm-hmm. to the needs of people and to the needs of morality, and that it's it's a kind of a con. Yeah, yeah. He, the branch says, you know, after Niebuhr, King experienced for the first time a loss of confidence in his own chosen ideas rather than inherited ones, and the social gospel lost a good deal of its glow for him at, almost overnight, and he never again fell so completely under the spell of any thought, any school of thought, including Niebuhr's, and. I guess Niebuhr had a, an axe to grind against John Dewey, which was a philosopher. And it's kind of like the liberal idea of, you know, education is going to save us, thought's going to cha- you know, improve things. And, you know, Niebuhr says, there's no evidence that human beings become less selfish or less predatory as they become better educated. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. The other thing that, that's interesting, I think, that comes out of, of this uh, interaction with Niebuhr is um, the 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 this little portrait of Niebuhr that includes him as a kind of a, a combatant, mm-hmm. right? Like he is he's advocating against uh, tolerance of Nazism and fascism. He's he's advocating to bring someone like Paul Tillich, um, and then after the war, he is condemning Stalinism and he's organizing and joining. Uh, Liberals like Hubert Humphrey and Eleanor Roosevelt to create Americans for Democratic Action, and I. The reason I think this is relevant to King is that it's not enough for King to have a a kind of a a, a critical struggle in his own head to see and undermine um, the social gospel. For example, he's going to be compelled to do something about it, and. By taking action, that's going to put him in tension with more traditional liberals. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes King exciting and prophetic, not simply his confrontations with overt white supremacist authoritarian structures, right? Bull Connor, mm-hmm. um, but his struggles with liberals. His struggles, for example, with liberals who are advising him to go more slowly and of course, ultimately confronting LBJ. He says, um, Branch says, if Niebuhr was correct, however, any social gospel preaching was necessarily a charlatan, and that Negroes among them were spiritual profiteers, enjoying the immense rewards of the Negro pulpit while dispensing a false doctrine of hope. Can we pause for something yeah. for a second and say something about the use of the word Negro, which sure. you have, have done? We, we had some dialogue about how to use language, just just like Branch himself, when he's writing his book uh, in the 80s, has to think about what yeah. lang- language to use. Do you want to say a little bit about how you have thought about this? Well, I find it weird to say the word Negro, so I've basically been saying black, and that's the first time I did say Negro. Um, it just sounds old and antiquated and diminutive to me, and I don't know, distancing or something. So I kind of don't like to use it, but I used the book there, so I can use it. Um, and Branch, Branch basically says that he's going to change over he to use it, the word black when black wh- replaces Negro. Yeah, he does it in the the context of the time. So he's that's like, it. That's the he's like I'm just going to do. Decision. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so it, it is. Yeah, it is weird how these words just change and become kind of so strange. Um, yeah, so so Niebuhr's really crushing. Uh, this idea for for King, um, 
but he still he, he kind of like incorporates both views it seems like he wants to have it both ways he wants to kind of agree that we need to think about evil and sin but the social gospel is super important to him in the context of segregation and equality and things like that branch points out that i think uh developing really rigorous intellectual framework is is always important for king and the other thing that he points out with uh a little gentle criticism and and humor is that king from his childhood has a predilection for big words yes and so i i love the image of King as the student at Crozer with piles of books in his room, staying up all night uh, to read and study, having more academic success than he's ever had uh, in his life, even as a student at at Morehouse. And King is always going to take seriously uh, in his theology these important ideas. He's going to take on board concepts from Marxism or from, from Gandhi. But at the same time, he's willing to challenge himself. He's willing to sort of take Niebuhr and use that as a tool to sort of question his assumptions, which again come back to, for example, his own standing, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're challenging uh, the the traditional authority and uh, role played by black pastors living a kind of black uh, social gospel, then you're actually asking questions about your own father, right? about the, the, the church that you're supposed to inherit, about... The, the person who's able to pay for you to go to graduate school. Um, Branch writes, the social gospel avoided the grid of politics. Marxism abhorred the church and all forms of idealism. Uh, to Niebuhr, they represented together the overriding tragedy of the age, modern man's loss of confidence in moral forces. By moral, he meant the mediating unscientific realm of justice, justice which combines love and politics, spiritualism and realism. Morality was a compromise of religion and politics necessitated by the special character of the immoral society. So, you know, King's struggling with this. He's reading Hegel, um, and Hegel has the, like, as we talked about before, negation and thesis, antithesis. Um, and he ends up emailing. Again, he emails Niebuhr. No, he doesn't. He he, he ends up, uh, Paul Tillich comes into view. He ends up writing um, Tillich and Niebuhr, and Niebuhr actually responds to him. Um, and I think he's going to show up later in the book. Uh, can we talk about Old Sourpuss again? Go for it. So Branch puts this in context again about, um, it's 1950, the Chinese Communist Party enter the Korean War. So that's going on. That starts. Um, and then due to anti-communism, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, gets in trouble for, well, they, they try to get him to be, they say the U.S. State Department says he's a registered agent of the Soviet Union. Um, he's 82 years old at this time. He's arraigned, handcuffed, and faced trial. Harry Belafonte, singer, actor, correct? Absolutely. Civil rights activist that we'll come to learn. Um, he's 24 years old. Says, what the heck? This is a bunch of, this is a bunch of nonsense. We got we to gotta stand up for this guy. Remember, the NAACP is like, oh, this old crank. Uh, but like now they have to, though, because he's such a symbolic person. So Du Bois in, um, 
indictment pitched the NAACP into convulsions. Roy Wilkins tries to straddle the fence and like, we got to support him, but like, you know, we can't go too hard. Um, And how does this end up? So how it ends up is, unfortunately, the NAACP says this communism thing's a problem for us. So they start purging anybody with, you know, communist sympathies or known communists within the NAACP, which is, you know, they feel like it's too big of a liability. It's an interesting and important dividing line across all social movements at this time, obviously including the labor movement uh, itself. I mean, if Harry Belafonte is a remarkable person because he was in the Merchant Marine, he was in um, uh, the National Maritime Union as as a young man at a time when there was a strong red influence in that union, which translated into an anti-racist agenda in that union and, and other sort of left-led unions in the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. And so Belafonte, I think, is a remarkable figure because at the same time as he becomes this genuine, you know, uh, celebrity as a, as a recording artist and, and then as an actor, he retains this unwillingness to, to cast aside people who have uh, communist allegiances. And of course, the NAACP and, uh, and Wilkins uh, take the other road. This is, of course, setting up uh, tensions that, that Dr. King uh, is going to have to navigate himself. And just rounding out this chapter, there's some stuff about uh, Martin Luther King with courting his uh, Coretta Scott King. There's some stuff about him actually dating a white woman at the time. Um, and she it seems like he's pretty into this woman, Betty, in love with her. But people are like, you know what, man, not a good idea. You can't have an interracial relationship right now. That's going to mess up your your preaching career. It's just not a good idea. People are giving this advice. Don't do that. So he ends that, ends up uh, meeting up with Coretta Scott King. Well, Coretta Scott, she comes from, I think, a also kind of wealthy, uh, you know, upper middle class black family. Uh, there's a funny scene where a couple scenes where daddy King is kind of a jerk to her (laughs) and is not interested in him marrying her, but then basically says like, fine, you guys should just get married. And eventually they do. Um, There's some more theoretical, like theological stuff in there that we don't need to get into. I think we kind of covered that. Anything else with chapter three? I'm just trying to think. Um, Because we're going to get into the bus boycott eventually. But, you know, King's just kind of getting better at preaching. He's he now is at the point where he needs to get a job. After Crozier, King goes to Boston University um, for a doctorate in, is it sociology? A a doctorate in divinity. Divinity. Okay, yeah. Um, and then he, while he's still kind of finishing that up, he ends up getting a, a preacher gig. He's looking at two different places, one in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I believe. And then he, uh, that was like the more prized job, but then there's this position at Dexter. And so where we started at the beginning of the book with Dexter Baptist Church, um, this is where Branch actually is writing. It's kind of cool. He, he's in Atlanta. He's going to go down to down to Dexter, and he ends the chapter with, 
Vernon Johns calls him and says, or he sends him an email, I forget. And he says, um, <laughs> hey, uh, I hear you're going to go ch- preach at my old church. I'm going to go preach at First Baptist. Can you give me a ride down there? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll, let's do that. So Vernon Johns and, and uh, M.L. King go down to, uh, um, to Montgomery, which is about, I, I Googled it. And I think they probably Googled it at the time, too. It's about a two and a half hour drive. Um, there is one thing that we, f- I think, did not cover before we finish this chapter and kind of get full swing into this book. And that is Michael King and Martin Luther King and that name thing. Did I mention that? So what happens is I, I, I mentioned that Daddy King goes to Europe. And I think Gabe got me sidetracked. I don't know what happened. But anyways, <laughs> when he goes to Europe, he really gets enamored with Martin Luther and going to Germany and learning about that. And he says, you know what? I'm changing my name to Martin. And my son's name. And my son's name. And there's actually a little bit of a controversy of how it happens and when it happens. But he's like, I'm changing my name to, to Martin. I mean, he's like a, whatever, a 40, 50-year-old man at the time. And he changes his son name to Martin. And that's how he becomes Martin Luther King. So he was actually born Michael, becomes Martin. Anything else to round out the chapter here, finish it off? Well, I, I like I like how you, you raised that at the same time we're talking about um, the young king uh, choosing his, his path to a doctorate and choosing where he's going to become a pastor because choosing the name for uh, Mike King to, to be known as Daddy King, mm-hmm. uh, Branch puts in the tradition of black people claiming their own names and making their own names as part of the legacy of overcoming slavery and the, the, yep. the horror of, of, uh, of slavery in which um, those who enslaved other people could choose their names and change their names. And that there's also a spiritual component of, for example, Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the apostle. And that um, Michael King choosing to become uh, Martin Luther King and then is is part of him asserting his identity uh, but also his authority and I think that's remarkable but in the same way uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is is trying to find his own path and assert his own autonomy for example by pursuing doctoral studies and then uh, looking further afield from Atlanta to find a place uh, to make his start. So we'll leave it there. This is like 1952 or 1953. Uh, the Montgomery bus boycott does not start till 1955. So we're going to start next episode, chapter four, with uh, King down in Dexter. Anything we want to say about the first three chapters of this book? Um, any thoughts? I think we kind of covered a lot. Well, I come to this project, you know, profoundly sympathetic to Martin Luther King Jr. That won't be surprising to you. But I feel much closer to him and I have warmer feelings of thinking about him in the context of his world, dealing with uh, intellectual challenges, thinking through how to relate to the power of his father and uh, understanding his own place in a racist society, but also in a society divided by class where he's relatively um, successful and, and is sort of born in a position of, of relative privilege. That 
I like the idea of the young king struggling. I, with I do these too things. because it, you know you think about him as like he was a guy that didn't like racism, and then he just like went on this crusade. First off, his backstory: he's full of all this uh, intellectual inquiry and not landing on any sort of strong idea at the beginning. In fact, we didn't talk about it, but at one point, it's he almost gets pretty far away from Christianity and is kind of questioning divinity and maybe wants to do something else and become like a professor. But I think he really likes people. He actually likes people he talks about. He has an ease with folks. Um, and so it's just interesting to know that he wasn't totally set on certain ideas from the beginning. Um, he was going back and forth on things. Not that he was going too far afield, but... Uh, He's a real contrast both with his father and with with John's, right? Those are people who uh, fight their way into positions of authority, either from from poverty or they're 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 struggling with other people around them. They have made their way from um, much more modest positions. Whereas I think the young king is from a position of privilege, also someone who is in some ways more sensitive. He's more... Um, I like how you say more sensitive because the one thing that I found a little bit unbelievable, and I made a joke about it earlier, but the throwing out of the window scene. Because I just don't... He seems more cool-headed, you know, more calm. And the point I guess Branch is making there is like he was extremely sensitive to those, you know, the, the, the part of his, you know, grandmother being injured or, or dying. Um, but, you know... And we're going to see later in his career how kind of cool-headed he is, I guess. And he, he goes from those childish acts to someone who ends up with, I think, what in modern kind of corporate language would be a, a kind of high level of emotional intelligence, being able to... Rel- and that seems... The window thing, I guess it is when he's a kid, but that seems more like a Vernon Johns thing would do, you know? Like that would be like, oh my God, you know, I can't, I can't deal with this. Um, well, he, it's not clear to me that Vernon Johns grew up in a house with multiple stories. <laughs> right. That's true, too. Um, anyways, super fascinating. Please, guys, read the book now. And definitely, we're going to start the next uh, episode on Chapter 4. And that's going to be a little background on Dexter and then getting into the busboy cot. So. I'll look forward to it. All right. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thanks for listening.